you are joining me for the first time today, well, my friend, you picked a darn good week to jump in the pool because a little history is about to be made as we feature our first former law enforcement leader on the program. I've had multiple requests for this gentleman, and rightfully so, because his career was nothing short of commendable. There is never a dull moment around this guy. And he never lacks a memorable quote. We are speaking of Mr. Ed Brady. He is the retired Henderson County Sheriff. He just decided to call it a career this past year in 2021, but prior to that, he enjoyed over 50 years. Yes, you heard me right, over 50 years in some form of law enforcement. We could no doubt get a number of shows in discussing various facets of his police background, but we will get the gist of it today. We will learn of his inspiration for joining the police force, his advice for aspiring officers, and to boot, he spent many years officiating high school sports. So he's got many, many stories to share on that front as well. We will hear a few of them in mere moments with Mr. Ed Brady on Blabbing in the Bluegrass, episode 10 of season six. Kentucky features so much more than basketball and horses. We're home to scenic spectacles and one-of-a-kind golf courses. If boating, fishing, dining, or music is your pleasure, we'll guide you to the sights and sounds that you will truly treasure. Cause we're blabbing in the bluegrass. There's nothing here to hide cause we're saying it with pride. Just a blabbing in the bluegrass. With knowledge of the state, you're sure to appreciate. Yes, we're blabbing in the bluegrass. Where musicians furnish talent and great whiskey cools your palate. Just a blabbing in the bluegrass. With a fit for every taste, precious time is not to waste. From Hardin to Harlan, Hickory to Hickman, we absolutely fit the Commonwealth like a glove. Right here on Blabbit in the Bluegrass as we thoughtfully and wholeheartedly explore and celebrate all things Kentucky. I'm Sam Moore here at the Unmatched. Upscale, North Quail Motel in beautiful Henderson, KY. And to say that I am honored to feature this week's guest would be an extreme understatement. If you've ever considered joining the police force, this is a definite must here. And even if you're not, you better respect the police and your surroundings and the work that they do on a daily basis because a lot of it goes unnoticed and tends to be taken for granted. Ed Brady will shed significant light on this in just a few minutes. Like we told you, he is the retired Henderson County Sheriff, but everything from road trooper to public affairs officer to chief to ending his career as the Henderson County Sheriff. He has literally done it all within the police realm. And his, uh, his time as a high school referee, we could probably devote a whole show just to that. But uh, we'll get a sample of those stories coming up. In fact, our discussion of his high school officiating days, that'll come towards the end of our chat. But well worth waiting for. You'll definitely be intrigued by his uh, stories from his time in law enforcement in the meantime. So definitely hang around. Don't you dare go anywhere. 
For one thing, I've got a bluegrass brain buster coming up right now. And as you know, if you've been listening for any extensive time frame, we try to feature one of these at the beginning of each and every show. And we give you time to think on it while my guests and I have at it. And we always give you the answer at the conclusion of the show. Now, it's not new news that Mammoth Cave is the world's largest cave system. Most of us have known that seemingly forever. But I want to know how many miles of known passages can be found within the Mammoth Cave system. Again, it's not new news to most of us that Mammoth Cave is the world's largest cave system, but I want to know how many miles of known passages can be found within the Mammoth Cave system. Get the brain going, get the juices flowing, we will reveal the answer to you in the program's Final segment. Good luck. Sam Moore proudly presents his Commonwealth Crowd Pleaser. Well, if you are not familiar with today's special guest, you will be really quickly, and you definitely should be because he had a commendable career in uh, law enforcement. Everything from uh, chief to uh, road trooper in the middle, public affairs officer, Sheriff, he has literally done it all in the in the police realm. And not to mention, he uh, spent a number of years high school refereeing, and that was definitely exciting for him. We could probably do at least one, maybe two shows, just talking about his uh, time spent officiating high school sports. But we'll dive into it a little bit, and we'll also get a synopsis of his time as uh, a law enforcement officer. So let's welcome none other than former Henderson County Sheriff Ed Brady. It's nice to be here. Thank you very much. Well, we're we're glad to have you, Ed. I tell you, we're making, like I told my listeners, we're making a little history today. You are my uh, my first former law enforcement figure to interview for this show. Well, I guess it's a... Uh not usual to have very many that are willing to go on the air and talk about their careers and things like that. But I'm always, I'm proud of what I've done and it's been an interesting career and I'm always glad to share it with others. Well, we're sure glad. And I tell you, you went to school with um, my uncle John, you you and John Roder were in the the same graduating class. His son, Chris, wanted me to to try to get some some John Roderer stories out of you, but don't feel bad if if none of them are G-rated. Don't feel obligated to. <laughs> well, now my John Roderer stories could fill up your whole show, but uh, they could, couldn't they? Something in, let me tell you something, something interesting about John Roderer, though. We, we were great friends growing up, and I lost my father uh, in a car wreck when I was fifteen years old. Right, uh huh, Mike. And uh, turned sixteen uh, a year later and got my driver's license and. As I would go out to run around with my guy friends, uh, I had two fathers who kind of took me under the wing and and uh, treated me like I was their own. One of them was Howard Moran's dad, um, Mr. Moran, Marvin Moran, and oh, John yeah. Roder, John Roder's dad. And and here's what they had in common: if we were going to go out that night, cruise around, and do what teenage boys do, both of them would would uh, you know separately sit down at the table with me and their son and say, look, you guys get out there and get in trouble tonight. You're going to deal with me. And I don't want you in trouble. I don't want you doing things you shouldn't be doing. And uh, and you will be accountable to me if you get out there and get in trouble. And, they, of course, that scared me to death for both of them to say that. And they said it numerous times every time we went out. But <laughs> looking back on it, that, that was one of the most caring and compassionate things that I could have received as a, as a 16-year-old boy was that those two men 
cared enough to sit me down at a table and talk to me about about caring about me and and me not getting in trouble. So John Roder's dad and Howard Moran's dad both are just guys in, in my past that I value and I, I, I just love them both for taking such an interest in me. Well, and he, he definitely, uh, John Roder, that is, took a, an interest in me. Of course, he passed away in 99 when when uh, when I was 11. But I tell you, you just can't, uh, you can't ever have too many father figures in your life, can you? Well, he'd look you square in the eye and tell you what the score was and what the rules were, and you better you better pay attention to him. Yeah, yeah he, he didn't sugarcoat anything, did he? He sure didn't, but I no. love him for it. Yeah, that, he was a good man indeed. I thought highly of it myself. Now, uh, you're a, a second-generation officer because uh, your dad, Mac Brady, was also a trooper. He passed away, sadly, in the, in the line of duty back in 1966. So... Uh, do you uh, do you remember any of the stories that he told from his law enforcement career by chance? Well, my dad uh, was one of the funniest human beings I was ever around. He could always he was always joking and messing around with you. Of course, uh, from the time I was brought home from the hospital as a baby, there was a state police car sitting in my driveway. He became a trooper in 1949. I was born in '51, so having a police officer in a family was natural and normal to me. And he would come in. He, he didn't share a lot of stories. I think a lot of police officers do not share stories with their families because they don't want their families to worry about them. Right. But I do remember occasionally he'd come in and tell us about something that happened on that shift or something interesting, sometimes something funny, and sometimes uh, something tragic. But uh, he, he told some stories, but it wasn't the center of our household at all. Oh, I believe it. Uh, were there any... Were there any valuable lessons about the field that he talked to that stand out in your mind before he passed? Well, I, I'll tell you what, he, he was this kind of guy, but when you're a teenage kid, you don't recognize it that much. But after I became a trooper, I would, when I was working in Henderson County, I might arrest somebody, an intoxicated person or something, and on the way into jail, you know, they'd notice my name tag, and they said, Brady, are you any kind of Mike Brady? And I said, yes, sir, that was my dad. And every one of them, without exception, said he was a fine man. He treated me fairly. He never mistreated me. And I think that was a, that's a lesson for not only law enforcement, but school teachers and doctors and any, any line of work that you're in. Treat people fairly. Shoot straight with them. Be as compassionate as you can be. And people remember that and people respect that. So I think one of the most valuable things that, that he had, uh, hopefully that I also had, was compassion toward people you were dealing with and just being fair and shooting straight with them. Well, I know you did, and I tell you, that was, <laughs> like you said, that's a a good lesson for all of us to learn, regardless of uh, what profession we're in. It's always important to uh, treat people fairly and uh, and with respect. Now, I tell you, Ed, many of us would undoubtedly be leery of entering the uh, law enforcement field if we had a father figure that um, passed away in the line of duty. So what exactly was it, sir, that gave you the... Uh, the courage and, and inspiration to pursue that line of work. Well, I, I had a, a great respect and appreciation for my father, but I really, growing up, don't believe that I wanted to be a police officer. When I graduated from Henderson County High School, I was getting ready to go to college at the community college here in Henderson for two years. I really needed to work to pay for my college uh, since my mom was a single mother. So, I got to checking, and the Kentucky State Police would hire you as a dispatcher at age 18, 
where you just sent troopers direct and answered phone calls. And they would try to put you on a schedule that, that worked around your school. So you, they put you on third shift if you had day classes or try to keep you on seconds where you had time to study, where you had time to go to school. So I applied for state police dispatcher primarily because I needed money for college and a flexible schedule. And then after I went to work up there and got to work around all those troopers, they were just like Superman to me, you know, heroes. And I became uh, interested because I watched them and worked with them. And by the time I was 21, I was hooked and knew I wanted to be a trooper. So just spending all all that time around those those troopers and around those folks in the line of work, that just sort of bit you like a bug, didn't it? Well, and you know, being around, being surrounded by that type of, of, of person, especially as a 18, 17, 18, 19 year old, that was so critical. Uh, they were all people I looked up to. They were people that were doing a, a hard job that was respectable. I think the community looked up to them and respected them. And I noticed that. And it was really a wonderful environment for me to become a young adult in being around all those people. So uh, I was very blessed that uh, that I was led toward the state police and they accepted me. I started my career there. Yes, 1969, just three years after uh, your father sadly passed. But you were uh, you were just 18 when you went up to Frankfurt and uh, got that first uniform there that you wore as a <laughs> as a dispatcher. Now, what were your what were your first impressions of the uh, the profession during those years as a dispatcher? Well, it was it was uh, it would be an hour of peace and quiet, and then all of a sudden, thirty or forty five minutes or an hour of just all heck breaking loose. <laughs> One extreme to six, the other. <laughs> yeah, we had six phone lines up state police post, and sometimes you were the only dispatcher working, and you get two or three phones ringing at the same time. You have to be a multitasker and take good notes because you take notes uh, off one phone call, click on to the next one, start taking notes on that one, and then you had to be able to piece it all together and send the correct trooper to the correct area of the post-16 district, which is six counties. And then if they got there, they might call for a record, they might call for an ambulance, they might call for the power company if power lines were down. And you were responsible as dispatcher to call all those people and send them to those locations and then log all that on a log where you could keep track of, of who you called and the time involved and things of that nature. So it was a multitasking job. It, it could be very exciting. I felt like it was important. When somebody called needing help, the voice they heard on the other end of the phone was me. I took that very seriously. Sure. And uh, it, it was just a terrific job for a, a guy that just got out of high school. I made decent money, not great money, but for a kid fresh out of high school, uh, I made enough money to pay for my college and, and buy my own car and, and generally take care of my own expenses. So it was a great experience. Right. <laughs> great experience. And you were, you know, you got a sense of gratification knowing that you were there for people and uh, doing a doing a great deed for those in need. Now, what, did you mainly work second and thirds? Yeah, there, there were in the summertime, I might work some day shifts. But when school was going on, most of my classes were during the day. So I would work mostly second and third shift. And the other element of that job that I thought was very important was is the dispatcher's the lifeline for the police officer that's out there. If he gets out there and gets in trouble, the person he calls on the radio is you. And you have to be cool and calm and, and know what you're doing and get them the correct help and the uh, correct amount of help and do it as quickly as you can. So it, it gave me a real sense of responsibility on taking care of others, on being responsible uh, for other people. 
and uh, it was just such a great learning experience. You always had to be close to that phone and that radio, so you had to keep your bathroom break short, didn't you? <laughs> you, had to, you had to be quick. You had to be quick, yes, indeed. No wasting time. Now, as you mentioned, while you were serving uh, as a dispatcher with the Kentucky State Police, you... Uh, you took some college classes and uh, gained an education before you became a trooper in 1972. So you mentioned the community college. Uh, talk about uh, the other colleges that, that you attended and courses you completed prior to uh, getting behind the wheel. You sort of took the, the grand college tour, didn't you? Well, you can only take two years at Henderson Community College. So for my junior year, I decided to go to Western Kentucky University. Gotcha. And so I went to Bowling Green. They were able to transfer me as a dispatcher down to the Bowling Green State Police Post. I was able to continue with my job and do do what I had already knew how to do. And then as I began to get closer to 21 years old, I, I decided that I wanted to be a state trooper. And so after my um, first term at Western, I transferred back to Henderson and, and took the test for trooper and was accepted at the academy and graduated. And then after I became a trooper on the road, I finished my degree. But I got hours at uh, Kentucky State University from being in the State Police Academy. Uh, of course, I had hours from University of Kentucky. I had some hours from Western Kentucky University. And I finished up at the University of Evansville. That's where I got my bachelor's degree. A great school right across the river and very fortunate to have it there. Oh, yeah. And that's where I finished up my bachelor's degree. So he finished up his bachelor's at uh, at University of Evansville. And of course, that police academy you mentioned that was at Kentucky State back when you went through, it's now in, uh, in Richmond at Eastern, isn't it? No, the academy is still in Frankfurt. Uh, I suspect because that's the state capital, that's where the academy will always be. It's not the same building I went to. They changed buildings and modernized it. But uh, Kentucky State University was there in Frankfurt. So as part of our... Uh, curriculum in the State Police Academy where we got some college credits from Kentucky State. Richmond is the is the training ground for all local police and sheriffs. That's and of course nice. they've got Eastern Kentucky University who back in the late 60s, early 70s was the number one university in the country for criminal justice degrees. So many people who've gotten into law enforcement uh, have gone to Eastern Kentucky University, and then their training academy for law enforcement for local police and sheriffs is in Richmond. Little difference there, but uh, you went through the academy in Frankfurt. Like we said, you uh, you became a road trooper in 1972 with the KSP. Now, uh, were those years all spent in Henderson, or did you, uh, did you switch locations from time to time? Well, when I graduated from the academy, I was assigned to Owensboro, Davis County. And I worked Davis County for two years, and there was an opening in Henderson County. And most guys want to get back home if they can. So I actually be transferred to Henderson County and was transferred here in 1974 and then finished up here in Henderson County. Okay, so all except for those first two years were, uh, <laughs> were in Henderson. Now, uh, share with us, why don't you, if you can, some of your most well uh, memorable, shall we say, interactions with uh, patrons who <laughs> didn't comply with the law? Well, you know, some of those uh, interactions were funny. Sure. Uh, occasionally you get a humorous drunk or a situation. So you better have a good sense of humor to be in law enforcement. Or, oh, absolutely. Uh, or you won't last long. You know, alcoholism, heart disease, divorce is very high in law enforcement. 
And uh, one thing I never wanted to do, I've seen police officers that work eight hours a day, and then when they're off duty, they want to wear a shirt that says police on it, a baseball cap that says police, and they want to walk around town and everybody look at them like they're a police officer. And when I was off duty, I, I just wore regular clothes. I was proud of what I did, but I knew it was important to have some separation and be back. Uh, you know, I was a daddy and a husband when I wasn't working, and then I was a tripper when I was on duty. But some of the people you encounter are, are, are funny. Some of them are, are um, very sad, the situation they're in. It pulls your heartstrings. Sometimes, some of them you want to do more for than the system allows you to do. Right. Uh, primarily children. Uh, you go into some of these dysfunctional homes, and there's a small child living there, and it was just heartbreaking. Uh, now, there was a little more latitude to take action if there was a child in the house where there was dysfunction going on. But, uh, yeah, some of it's quite honestly frightening. I mean, in my career, I was probably scared 500 times. And that's okay uh, to be scared as long as you still do your job. And uh, if you show me a police officer says, I was never scared, I'm going to show you a liar. Yeah, because, I believe it. Because you better be scared in some of those situations. Because some of those situations can alter your life in a very meaningful way. So, you know, it runs the gamut from, from some of it being funny, some of it being heartbreaking, some of it being frightening. But always I had the satisfaction, the feeling that I was doing something good for the community and, and hopefully making it a better place. Oh, yes, that, that you definitely did. And like you said, you, you experienced a little bit of everything there as far as uh, stories and, and what you felt. And like you said, if, if you're a police officer and, and, and you're never scared, then, well, you probably don't have a pulse. Well, one of the main things that, that law enforcement taught me, it gave me a, a very, very strong appreciation for growing up in a loving household. I had two parents that loved me, and they supported me, and they told me they loved me, and they, they encouraged me to be successful and to take new challenges. And as a police officer, when you go into some of these dysfunctional households and a child is sitting there, the parents never said, I love you. The parents have never said, I'm proud of you. The parents have never said, you can do good in this if you try. Uh, they're just basically ignored or they're mistreated. Mm -hmm. And going into some of those places made me realize what a great uh, blessing and privilege I had to live in a house where I had parents that loved me and made me feel uh, safe and successful and not every child has that and we wonder sometimes where our young people are so uh, mis mis malfunctioning uh, it's because they've never had the love and support that a young person needs to, to gain confidence and to make good decisions and things of that nature so it, it's really a psychology class eight hours a day when you're in law enforcement that's a good that's a good way to look at it sir and it makes you appreciate what you have even more especially if you're you know like like me and like ed and you had wonderful supportive parents growing up now uh my cousin-in-law enjoyed gainful employment with the henderson police for uh a number of years chris powell you undoubtedly remember him sure i do absolutely yeah, yeah. chris powell had a, a a wonderful tenure there and but i would always laugh wholeheartedly because a lot of times he would share with me stories about um, sob stories, and some sto some sob stories are, are legit, but a lot of them were were made up, and there were also some lame excuses people gave for for speeding or driving under the influence, what have you. So, just out of curiosity, what are some of the most laughable excuses or reasons that stand out in your mind that people gave to try to justify their uh, their actions on the road? 
Well, numerous people said they had to get to the bathroom, that they were really need to go to the bathroom. In fact, I carried a roll of toilet paper in my cruiser. And if they said they had to go to the bathroom, I'd go up and give them a roll of toilet paper until if they needed it, they could use it while I was writing them a ticket. Nobody ever took me up on it. Nobody ever used it. Uh, I had a guy one night that was speeding around the bypass because he said he just got picked up a hot pizza and he's trying to get it home before it got cold. Um, they'll tell you just about anything. Uh, one said he spilled hot coffee on his leg and made him push the accelerator down and go fast. Oh my uh, gosh, that's hilarious. <laughs> had a lady in Owensboro one time that, that she was speeding on the Audubon Parkway and I stopped her and she said she thought she had a person who was hiding in the back of her car and she was trying to get to Henderson before that person jumped across the seat to get her. And I said, well, the back seat of your car is going the same speed as the front of the car. You're not going to outrun him, you know. No. <laughs> but just, just you know, anything they could say to justify it. Most of them were humorous. Uh, you just took that as part of the job and went on and did your job. And, and uh, some of them, were, you, you laughed out a little bit, but you finally got to hearing them so often that it got where it was just routine. Yeah, I can see that. Some of them got to be repetitive and redundant, I'm sure. And, and no matter how hard you laugh, though, it uh, it didn't typically keep you from riding the ticket, did it? <laughs> well, you know, I, I'll be honest with you. I gave a lot of breaks. I, I wrote a lot of tickets. I mean, I was uh, I was a busy, busy officer out there. I didn't sit around. Um, you know, I was checking on cars. I was pulling people over. I was looking for suspicious vehicles in neighborhoods, suspicious, suspicious activity. Right. And I'd contact those people and see what they were up to. But, I mean, I, I feel like every police officer has to take a level of enforcement action he feels comfortable with or she sure. feels comfortable with. That is fair. Give you an example. A car driving down the parkway on a beautiful sunny day in good weather running 80 miles an hour is not a traffic hazard. But a car running down the parkway at 80 miles an hour when it's snowing or it's raining or it's dark or it's heavy traffic, that, that is a hazard. And you have to kind of make some judgment calls. Hey, what he's doing right now is not that big a deal. So I'm going to look for something more dangerous than that one. And there's other times you go, we know I think he is causing hazard and it's my responsibility to try to get it corrected. So you pull him over and do what you got to do about it. But I, I gave a lot of breaks. If he had a good attitude with me, that helped you out. The worst thing you can do to a police officer, start getting smarter, mouthing off to him. Uh, you know, if you had a good attitude with me, uh, that went a long way on, on what was going to happen with our contact. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and uh, that might have let them off easier than they might have uh, gotten off otherwise. And like you said, it's always important to to be reasonable and show compassion as much as possible, even though you're trying to do your job and, and, uh, and enforce the law. Now, uh, in 1982, I know you enjoyed quite a change of pace when you became public affairs officer for Kentucky State Police. I know this uh, undoubtedly eliminated a lot of the, the travel and, and stress that you had battled previously, but talk about the, the most notable differences between uh, your duties as a trooper and your duties as a public affairs officer. Well, as a trooper, you worked weekends, holidays, varying hours, third shift, second shift. Uh, you had a lot of face-to-face -face contact with people that were not glad to see law enforcement. Uh, you know, they're having family trouble, they were speeding, they were drunk driving. And when you go into public affairs, that was just a great job. You worked mostly Monday through Friday day shift. 90% uh, of the people that you encountered were glad to see you. Uh, you were giving a safety program to kids in school or to a ladies club or, or something of that nature. Um, and 
I got to represent, I was the spokesperson for an organization that I absolutely adored. I thought the Kentucky State Police was just top-notch. And for me to get to be the spokesperson for them was quite an honor, and I took it very seriously. And I always tried to represent them to the, to the best of my ability because when people looked at me, if they're giving a speech on seatbelts or drugs or whatever, they thought that's what every trooper in Kentucky looked like and talked like. Right. So it was very important for me to represent the state police in a way that most people would have said, boy, I'll tell you what, those state troopers are really sharp. And I think they really know what they're talking about. So that was just a, a terrific job. Instead of working one county as a road trooper, you generally work one county. I had all six counties. They had the entire post area. And my schedule, I made my own schedule. I, some nights I'd come out and go to Ohio County and talk to a ladies club. Uh, some afternoons I'd go to Union County and talk to the, the junior high school about drugs and alcohol. So it was uh, sometimes you come out on Sunday and go, go talk to a church group on Sunday night. But you got to make your own schedule. You got to work six counties. And uh, although I continued to write tickets if I was going to a program and somebody needed one, or if I ran up on a traffic accident or when a trooper goes by, I would stop and work the traffic accident. I still did some of that, but I could kind of select the things I wanted to do and the things that I didn't do. That was just a fantastic job. Yeah, you had more leeway, and I know it really meant a lot to you to deliver those important messages to people through uh, speeches and so forth. Now, our local Post 16 in Henderson, let's see, that covers Henderson, Union, Webster, Davis, um, Ohio. Let's see, there's one more. Well, it doesn't cover Webster. It covers Henderson, Union, Davis, McLean, Ohio, and Hancock. Oh, okay, McLean and then Hancock. Okay. Yeah, but Webster County was in the Madisonville district, so we did not have the Webster County. Okay, so you didn't you didn't venture into that territory down Webster County, at least not at least not for the job. Not on a regular basis, no. Not on a regular basis. Now, did you do any commercials or PSAs for for KSP when you were public affairs officer? Oh yeah, that that was part of the job. Uh, We did a lot of safety commercials. Uh, I was when there was a major incident with state police. I was the one that did the news release and generally appeared on camera, uh, telling about the incident and what was going on. So there was a whole lot of media exposure as public affairs officer. Absolutely. And uh, in 1991, you retired from the uh, Kentucky State Police, and you became the uh, chief of police for the uh, Henderson City Police Department. So uh, talk about your time in this capacity, and and, uh, tell us about the the growth and evolution that occurred in the uh, City Police Department uh, during your tenure there. Well, when I went to the city police, they had some excellent, excellent officers down there. They were hard workers. Uh, they were dedicated to the job. Their equipment was terrible. The reputation was terrible because a lot of them were not in good shape physically. And people kind of make fun of them because they weren't in shape. They were, were driving equipment, using equipment that was kind of antiquated. So I knew when I went down there that we had personnel who could do good police work. And what they needed was is a leader who could get them the proper equipment and, and get them to, to look sharp uh, and raise their image where the public, you know, saw them and respected them more. So it was all, it was kind of a public relations job going into the city police. But there was also some issues with some disciplinary issues down there. I think the first 18 months I was police chief, uh, we fired eight or nine officers for things that we felt like they shouldn't have been doing. Oh, uh-huh. uh, and and then it, it the, the department just really made a, a great, turnaround about that point and started doing it uh, the proper way with a better image we got them better equipment we we 
tried to show them we valued them. We thought they were important and we respected them. And um, I'll tell you what, the, the psychology of the police department kind of kind of moved around a little bit when we started going in the right direction. Absolutely. And uh, like I said, you you know, you gave them better equipment and the tools they needed to, to be successful. And I know even even though you were the chief, when some of the officers were out or, uh, you know, couldn't assume their roles, you occasionally did have to take to the streets and, and patrol, didn't you? Well, when I was down there, we had, we had the command staff, we called it Blue Collar Friday. Uh, blue Collar because officers wore blue uniforms. And every Friday, myself, the chief de- uh, the deputy chief of the police department, all the majors, we would put on our work uniforms and go out and take calls with the officers. Um, and not to check up on them, but just they, they want to see you're out there. They want to see that you know what they're doing, that you know what they're experiencing. And we would serve as a backup to them. We let them handle the call. But we go as backup for them. And I think most employees, not just in law enforcement, but just employees in general, want to know that their bosses realize what they do and how hard they're working and the efforts that they're making. And the best way for a boss to do that is to actually go out there and experience it with them. So I would encourage anybody who's in management or who's the boss of the company, every once in a while I go out on the assembly line or whatever the people in your company are doing, to stand side by side with them and, and help them along and talk to them about what kind of issues are you having professionally? Is there anything personally I can help you with? You uh, go. They got to know that you care about them and that you do appreciate what's going on. I think that's very important. Yeah, that's great advice. A Blue Collar Friday. So once a week you went out there and accompanied your, uh, your officers. And I guess afterwards you would, you know, you give them, pointers to tell them what they did well and tell them what their needs for improvement were and all that stuff. Well, and see, it wasn't necessarily for that because we didn't want the guys to be nervous when we were out there thinking he's trying to to catch me doing something wrong. Sure. We just wanted to know we were there in support. 95% of what a police officer does is good work and they do it right. Uh, you know, 5% of the time people mess up, but that's in any business. You, you don't have any perfect employees. Oh, no. But we didn't want our employees to feel like we were out there to critique them necessarily. I'm not saying that, that we would not do that on occasion, but primarily we wanted to be out there to develop a personal relationship with them. Yeah, just offer proactive support and let them know that uh, that you were there for them, certainly. Now, right. uh, you held that position as chief of police until... 2006 when you successfully ran for Henderson County Sheriff and you held that post for uh, almost four terms until your uh, retirement in 2021. So when you think back on your uh, incredibly productive time as Henderson County Sheriff, what were some of the accomplishments and uh, recognitions that uh, that made you most proud, sir? Well, we kind of went into the sheriff's office with the same situation we had with the city. We had terrific people working there. They didn't have very good equipment. Uh, when I was at the city police department, we were able to apply for federal law enforcement grants. and were able to get almost $5 million in federal grants when I was with the city police. And that's the way that we really got the equipment in better shape and facilities in better shape, not necessarily with local tax money, but with federal grants. And when I went to the sheriff's office, we were able right away to get a a $700,000 grant from Washington to buy some more modern equipment. Uh, You know, we just tried to instill in the guys. I I told the guys at the city police and the personnel at the sheriff's office both. I said, just go out and do your job. Don't be afraid of arresting any particular person. Don't be afraid of any 
political ramifications for you as a city policeman or as a sheriff. Go out and do your job. Be right and be polite, and I will support you whether you're arresting the governor of Kentucky or whether you're arresting some drunk down in a ditch somewhere. Just be polite, be right, and don't worry about any political ramifications. So don't be afraid to do your job no matter who the person is. And I think especially in the sheriff's office, there is a political heir to the sheriff's office because the sheriff is elected. I think the deputies that always had a feeling in the back of their mind that if they arrested the wrong person, they'd get in trouble. Or if they made the wrong person in the community mad, they'd get in trouble. And I told them right away, go do your job and do it right, and I will support you 100%, and I'll deal with any of those issues that might, might happen. Be right and be polite. I like that. But uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a good good motto to live by. Now, uh, you retired just this past year in 2021. What, um, what made the timing feel right to you to, to call it a career at that point? Well, in June of 2021, I had, uh, I had 50 years in law enforcement, 52 years in law enforcement, actually. Oh, yeah, counting your so dispatch in, years. Yeah, so in June, it was, it was, it was 52 years even. Uh, I had 30 years in my retirement system. The city and the sheriff are in the same retirement system. So I had 30 years in that retirement system. I had a chief deputy, David Crafton, who's a fine man who wanted to be sheriff and wanted to run for sheriff, and I felt like if I retired – about a year and a half early, then he could be the sheriff for a year and a half. He could run as the sheriff instead of as the chief deputy. It might help him get elected. And it, it just, you don't want to stay until people don't want you anymore. I've seen so many people stay in jobs until they're run out, basically. And I had been in this job for a long time, and I saw, you know, the people have probably just about had enough of it, Brady. It's probably time for him to go home before they start telling me they want me to go home. So I wanted to go out on my own terms. I felt like the timing was just perfect as far as my retirement, as far as helping my chief deputy, as far as the number of years I had in service. Uh, I, I just turned 70, so I, I just felt like everything was kind of falling into place. There you go. All the pieces of the of the puzzle were coming together. It's hard to believe that uh, it's been over a year now. I can't imagine anybody getting too much of Ed Brady, but I have heard a number of people say that after they retired. They're like, I, I didn't want to overstay my welcome. So I can, I can definitely respect that perspective. Now, when a lot of folks think of Ed Brady, they, uh, they remember you from your many years of service as uh, a high school sports official. Now, which sports did you primarily referee in? I did basketball for 26 years. Okay. And that's probably the most dangerous job I had was being a basketball official. That's saying probably something. More dangerous be, probably more dangerous than being a law enforcement officer because I tell you, every call you make on a basketball floor, you make one side or the other mad. Oh, and no. you know, There's no keeping everybody happy, is there? Well, everybody in the gym is for somebody except the officials. Right. You know, the, the coaches are for their team. The parents are for their son. The grandparents are for their daughter. The you know, they're all for somebody, and the three officials that are on the floor are totally objective. We don't care who wins. We just want to see if everybody has a fair chance to play. So, um, you know, so every every time you blew a whistle, you know, somebody in the stands wouldn't like it. But I'll tell you what, it is so much fun to be out on the floor with those kids and participate with those kids and look at their efforts and, and how strongly they wanted to win. And it was just such a pleasure to be out there with them. It was good exercise also for a 55, 60-year-old man to be run up down the floor with 17- and 18-year-old teenagers five <laughs> nights a week. But, it kept you in shape, didn't it? 
you know, but the, the just the pleasure of being on the floor with the kids while they participated and knowing that your officiating was making it possible for them to play, that was a great experience. Oh, absolutely. Now, did you, uh, did you play any sports as a youngster, Ed? Well, I was on the football team. My senior year, I got to play some. I was the skinniest, smallest kid on the football team until I was a senior in high school. Were you now? And uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I just sat the bench for for two and a half years. I got to play a little bit as a junior and more as a senior. Um, and of course, everybody wants to play. But I'd say being a part of a team like that, uh, you learn some valuable experiences on teamwork and on having each other's back and trusting each other. And um, you know, the, I, I'll be honest with you, I, my whole life has been a, a great experience. And I think because it has been, but I think also your attitude. You can either take things as being negative and I don't like it, or you can take things as this has been a good experience. I've learned a lot from it and appreciate what's happened. And my whole life has been a positive, rewarding experience that I'm very grateful for. Oh, absolutely. Yep. And uh, I know that that time as a, as a high school ref was definitely one that you can look back on with a lot of fond memories. Now, did you ever do any state tournaments like at Rupp Arena and so forth? No, no, I did call um, eight or nine or ten regional tournaments, and those were usually in Bowling Green at Diddle Arena or down at Murray State, down at their uh, college basketball. That was a lot of fun to go into a college basketball arena and officiate because it's just an entirely different environment. So I did call some regional tournaments, but I really never had a strong desire to go to the state basketball tournament. That was that was really for the big boys, and I just felt like probably uh, regional basketball official was about my top ring and then the, the better ones needed to go on to state. <laughs> well, don't sell yourself short, but I know that uh, your service was appreciated at the at the regional level. Now, I know that technically, it doesn't happen very often, but technically uh, officials do have the right to, to throw fans out if they're causing serious disruption. Did you ever have to eject any fans from a game? You know, I never did, but I think my law enforcement background gave me a thicker skin than some other people. You know, I was talked to like a dog as a police officer on occasion. So if a fan got upset, uh, you know, I think I probably took more than other officials did. Um, I did have a ball game where I, during a dead ball, I called the uh, athletic director to the scores table and I said, have the, the police officer that's working the game will throw that guy that green hat tell if he says another word he's going to be listening from the car or on the radio <laughs> and the police officer went up there and the guy calmed down you know and the, the, the fans have a right to yell they, I mean they paid their ticket they love a kid that's on the floor I didn't care at all if they said I made a bad call because I did make some bad calls when I got offended is when they accused me of cheating well you're for that other team well you won't give our team a chance well you're calling it all you know I'm not dishonest, and I'm not going to cheat either one of those teams. Those kids' little hearts beat the same on both sides, yeah. and they both want to win equally as bad. And I wouldn't cheat one of them over the other at all. So the only time really that uh, a fan got on my nerves is they started sounding like they were accused me of being a cheater. And I didn't take kindly of that. But if they said I made a bad call, I probably did. Well, well, nobody's nobody's perfect. But Ed Brady was was certainly not a homer. Now, what were um, what were some of the the highlight reel heroics or uh, memorable games that uh, that really stand out in your mind? Because I know there were I know there were a fair number of them. Well, see, they would not let me call in Henderson County because I was from Henderson County. Ah, that makes sense. 
and for a visiting team, they would think since I was the chief for the sheriff, I was I was trying to take advantage for, for our kids. Sure. But the games that were always fun because they were big rivalries was like Madisonville, uh, South Hopkins, or Madisonville, North, uh, North Hopkins versus Hopkins Central. Those were all kids that lived in the same county. The gym would be full. They'd have both pep bands there. It was loud. It was hot. Um, Webster County, Union County is a great rivalry. They always had a bunch of fans for that. Everybody was hyped up for the game. And officials really enjoy being out on the floor when the gymnasium's full and the pet bands are there and everybody's cheering. Um, it's exciting to be out there. Plus, if the gym is full, you don't hear the individual person yelling at you so bad. This There's is... five people in the gym, you hear everything that, <laughs> oh, that yeah. they yell at you. But if the gym's full, you don't hear as much. But, any of the big rivalry games would be fun. Hopkinsville, Christian County was always a big ball game with, with a big gym and, and a lot of noise. So those are the kind of ball games that officials really enjoy officiating. Oh, yeah. Hopkinsville and Christian County both have a solid tradition, too, in, in pretty much all sports. Now, did you ever have to dodge fans, like, after they stormed the floor from a last-second shot or something like that? <laughs> no, I mean, we, we were trained as soon as, as soon as that buzzer went off, we were to – to sprint to the dressing room uh and i have had parents right at the end of the ball game try to follow me into the dressing room because they weren't happy with a call i made or something and you know you just got to uh hey we're not going to talk about the ball game no you can't come in here ball game's over but again you got to realize that whoever was upset with you loved somebody that was on that floor yeah they're passionate wants their son or daughter to play at, uh, uh, at Kentucky or at Western or Louisville or someplace, and they're hoping they'll get there. And if you make a call that they don't like, they think you're holding them back. Right, yeah. They're just sticking up for, you know, their kid or, or their team, you know, the folks that that uh, they're emotionally invested in. Now, when did you peel off that referee uniform for good? I probably stopped officiating about uh, seven years ago. Okay, so about 2015. Yeah, I just decided, you know, my age was catching up with me a little bit. I was putting on a little bit of weight. That season we had uh, two officials that collapsed on the floor. One of them passed away on the floor, and the other one was oh, taken yeah. to the hospital to survive. But I just got thinking, you know, I'm, I'm 60-something years old, and I'm trying to keep up with 18-year-old kids that are in great shape. And if I'm not going to maintain terrific physical conditioning, then I need to get out of it. Yeah, that, that running up and down the floor wasn't as easy as it had been, was it? It was, you know, it was, uh, but I, I, my heart doctor one time told me, he, he said, boy, your heart's in great shape. And I said, well, I'm a basketball official. He said, do that as long as you can, because he said that type of exercise is great for your hips, your knees, your ankles, your heart. Um, and he said, that, so, you know, that was really good for you, but you reach an age where you start thinking, things can go wrong and maybe ought to maybe ought to get out of it right so <laughs> that was that was the right time for you but um i know those years of service were enjoyable and uh, everybody involved in uh regional high school athletics really appreciated it well now it's uh it's ed brady advice time to close the show here let's start with the uh, before we get to your advice for uh future police officers let's start with officiating what what would be your advice what are some words of wisdom that uh, you wish somebody had told you maybe when uh, when you started officiating high school basketball get involved we need officials we need baseball we need softball basketball football volleyball we need officials uh, so 
get involved with these young people. Take that step. Go out, get the training you got to you got to get, and get involved with these kids and give them a chance to participate. Exactly. It's a it's a certification process, and I know it's probably a little different now than it was when when you started. But I'm guessing you can get certified within about what six months or so. Well, you can get all the the tests that you written tests that you take and rules tests and all that, but you generally have to call freshman and junior varsity games for three or four seasons before you move up to varsity. Oh, that makes it's sense. Like the, it's kind of like the minor leagues and major leagues in baseball, and you got to kind of earn your way up to the varsity games. That's, but, that, that makes sense. <laughs> but if you've been thinking, if you love basketball, you ought to be a basketball official. If you love baseball, you ought to umpire baseball. It gives you a chance to participate and be out there with the kids. There you go. So, uh, officiate a sport you love and just be willing to <laughs> – to pay your dues and, and work your way up. So now a, a similar question for those listening intently to our conversation who perhaps desire to be future police officers. What would you tell them? Well, again, you know, there's there's a lot of negative publicity right now in, in this country, and rightfully so. There's been some police officers do some t- horrendous things that a good police officer goes, oh, my goodness. You know, you, you shouldn't have done that. How in the world could you have done that? And because of the negative publicity, a lot of people go, I'm not going to be a policeman. Uh, you don't make a great deal of money. Uh, usually you have a pretty decent retirement, health insurance. But if you want a job that is really exciting, if you want a job that is that is satisfying, a job to be proud of, a job where you do make a difference, uh, I would highly recommend going into law enforcement. Um, and, and really, that's advice for any young person that wants to be a nurse or a doctor or a newspaper man or a, a worker at a tool and die company. Go into it knowing that it's something you can excel at, something you can do well at, something that's going to benefit your community, and then throw yourself into it. Yeah, just put your heart and soul into it and then uh, see where it goes. But you're right, no, no two days are generally alike in the police world, are they? <laughs> no, you don't know when you go to work that day if it's going to be a quiet day and you're going to come home without much uh, going on or if it's just going to be a very hectic, busy, hard-running day uh, where you come home really, really worn out. Yeah, you just it's always sort of a crapshoot, but that's part of the excitement. So, uh, you know, definitely if, if it's something you're interested in, investigate it, and uh, maybe you'll become the next dead Brady. Well, thanks so much for joining us, sir. And uh, it sounds like retirement's off to a good start for you. You know, the beauty of retirement is you can, uh, you can enjoy those donuts pretty much any day in time your heart desires. <laughs> well, actually I've never been a donut eater, but I'll tell you what, I was oh. afraid of retirement. I was scared to death to retire and I have enjoyed retirement a hundred percent so far. There's nothing about retirement. I don't like. So it's great. I I was blessed to get to do what I love to do for 52 years. And now I'm blessed to be happy as a retired person. So let's just see what the next chapter is going to be. There you go. It's only time will tell. And it's good to know Ed Brady's happy even without without a whole bunch of donuts. Well, we sure appreciate your time, sir. And uh, we'll do this again sometime. I appreciate your, your call. Thank you so much. We lumped Ed Brady into the Commonwealth crowd pleaser category, and that's with such good reason. There is so much you can learn from a guy like him, not to mention all the laughs and comedic entertainment that you always get when you're in his presence. So I greatly appreciate Mr. Ed 
No, not that one. Not a horse is a horse, of course, of course. But Mr. Ed Brady for uh, taking time out of his busy schedule because even in retirement, that man is not one to just sit around. So I am flattered that he took time to join me and be my guest here on Blabbit in the Bluegrass. And I am confident that he will not be our last former law enforcement leader to speak with. I'm sure that all of them have very fascinating stories to share, but I will say this. Ed Brady is going to be awfully hard to top. But if you'd like to let me know about other people of that nature who formerly served in that capacity or maybe still do, please let me know about them via email. It's bluegrassblabbin at gmail.com, okay? B-L-U-E-G-R-A-S-S-B-L-A-B-B-I-N at gmail.com. Not just former law enforcement personnel. You can also use that address to let me know about any topics or guests that you'd like to hear featured on the program, whether they be restaurant owners, exceptional educators, musicians. We feature a wide array of topics here on this show, and as long as they are connected to Kentucky, I'm more than glad to consider them. So shoot me those emails, and also feel free to reach out to me via the Blabbing in the Bluegrass Facebook page. All of my previous shows are there. If it's your first time to be with us, all of those are waiting for you. You can catch up on anything and everything that you have missed on the Facebook page. Please like and follow the page if you aren't already, because we also offer teasers on future shows so that you can stay up to date with upcoming plans. You can make comments. You can leave messages. And I always, always enjoy interacting with listeners on that platform. Now, if we play our cards right, we're going to come at you again next Wednesday, and that would be August the 10th. That is actually the first day of school for uh, faculty and students in the Henderson County School System. So that's a good way for me to remember it. August the 10th is when we plan to come back at you, so make sure that you are not absent. If you are, we will know it. You are the glue that keeps this show together. But until then, before we part ways, we have one final order of business to take care of. We need to reveal the answer to this week's Bluegrass Brain Buster, which we brought to you at the beginning of the program, most of us already know that Mammoth Cave is, in fact, the world's largest cave system. But your question from me was, how many miles of known passages can be found within the Mammoth Cave system? Your answer currently is a whopping 420. You heard me right, 420 miles of known passages can be found within the Mammoth Cave system. Now, believe it or not, that number grew as recently as last year. In September of 2021, eight more miles of passages were discovered within Mammoth Cave. So prior to this past September, your number was 412. But we are now up to 420 miles of known passages within the cave. And who knows what's to come. But talk about a perfect way for uh, you and your little munchkins to cap off the summer. Great tourist attraction. Nobody ever leaves disappointed, no matter which tour you choose within the cave. So, again, 420. That's how many known miles of passages 
there are within the cave system. And come on back next week for yet another Bluegrass Brain Buster. And remember to listen and subscribe to the show absolutely free of charge via Apple, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Verbal. They are all very accessible. They won't cost you a dime, so no reason for you not to grace me and my guests with your presence each and every week. And until we meet again next week, do me a favor and keep laughing, keep smiling, and keep blabbing in the bluegrass. Because we're blabbing, blabbing in the bluegrass. There's nothing here to hide because we're saying it with pride. Just a blabbing, blabbing in the bluegrass. With knowledge of the state, you're sure to appreciate. Yes, we're blabbing, blabbing in the bluegrass. Where musicians furnish talent and great whiskey cools your palate. Just a blabbing, blabbing in the bluegrass. With a fit for every taste, precious time is not to waste.